1 Samuel 17. Uh, if, you're, if you have a device, you can go to the, uh, the ESV version on your U version, if that's, if that's what you got going on. 1 Samuel 17. While you're getting there, um, we're in the middle of a series right now. It's called The God Who Redeems. And the big idea behind it is that we're going through stories of God who restores his people for his glory. Um, so what happens is, is that sometimes we grow up in the church or we've been in the church for many years, even after we've grown up in it. And we end up going through stories of the Bible and all different kinds of areas in the Bible, not just stories. And we tend to draw everything back to ourselves, right? So we just by default are self-centered people, aren't we? I mean, aren't we? Yes. Um, okay, I'm a self-centered person. So what happens is a lot of times, is especially if we've grown up in certain traditions or certain churches, is every time we open this book, we think that it's a book written about us. Um, when it's actually a book written by God, for God, to God's glory, for the good of us, okay? But this was not a book that was written, that was tailor-made, that was custom-fit just for you and your life. It's actually a book to remind us that God is the one who is going after his own glory, that God is actually about God, that God cares about God. Ultimately, he cares about his own glory. And because of that, his love and his grace and his mercy gets poured out onto us. And when we read his word and the way he inspired the writers of his word, we understand more about him. And when we understand more about him, we understand how to live a life according to the things he's written about himself in his book and then experience his grace and his mercy in his rest. So that's kind of where we've been going as we've been going through some of the classic stories in the Bible. And today is just the, maybe the granddaddy of all the stories, the story of David and Goliath. There's probably no story in the Bible that's become less about God uh, than David and Goliath, right? I mean, you just go on YouTube. I clicked on YouTube because I was curious. Uh, some of the sermons, you know, you click on David and Goliath's sermon. Here's some of the titles that were laid out on, on there. It was... Uh, just hundreds of sermons on David and Goliath. And uh, here's some of the titles that you would, you would see if you clicked on that, like I did. Uh, Facing the Giant, right? You guys have heard that one. The Giant Has Fallen. Uh, defeating the Giants in Your Life. Or if, you know, you like uh, World of Warcraft and you're kind of medieval, you know, Slaying the Dragons of Your Life. Um, here's some other ones. Giants Do Die. Blessed in the Dark Places. Here's my favorite. Five smooth stones of faith. I don't, I don't know. That's, I'm, just tell, I'm just reading it for you right now. So what we want to do this morning is we really want to try to aim into having a more God and gospel-centered approach to what this story is actually talking about. Because when you hear a message on David and Goliath, it shouldn't remind you of something inspirational that you would hear on Oprah or Dr. Phil. Right? We shouldn't be able to draw something so close to something that you'd be able to see on cable or network television. And the big idea with that for today is simply this, all right? When we look into the story of David and Goliath, is that God uses our greatest fears to confront our unbelief in his sovereign rule and reign. Because that's what's going on at the heart of this story. In fact, if you go with me, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoiler if you're in 1 Samuel 17. And you go all the way to verse uh, 46, the end of verse 46. This is David talking. And he basically says this when he's talking to Goliath. And we're going to get to this in a minute. But let me just, let me just front load this thing with this. 
This is David talking to Goliath, and he's saying at the end of 46 there that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you he will give it to you into our hand. So David's big idea with this is that everybody would know who ultimately is in control of everything, of the outcome of everything. It's not weapons. It's not events. It's not how we can muster things up. It's not our planning. It's not our design. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's God who designs what he wants to do and accomplishes it through us But ultimately, it's God who accomplishes it. Um, So here's a little bit of the setup to the story because we've got a lot of verses that I want to go through. I want to make sure we read the verses. But the backstory, the setup to this is that there's a guy, there's a king of Israel that's still in command. It's not David. David was anointed king, but he hasn't become king yet. He was still years away from that. But the guy in command is a guy named Saul, King Saul. And this dude has just become a disaster of, of a leader He's a guy who showed some early promise as being the first king of Israel, but he just led the nation away from the Lord. So at some point, if you go back to uh, chapters uh, 16 and 17, God just took away his throne. He said, basically, Saul, here's the thing. You rejected me, so now I'm rejecting you. And then the prophet Samuel said, I'm walking away as well. God has called me away from you, Saul. The problem with that, and the reason why that's significant as we get into the stories, is that kings of Israel back then would hear from God through the prophets. Okay? So the way that Saul was to know what to do in terms of his kingship, in terms of how to fight battles, in terms of where to go with things, would be through the prophet Samuel going before the Lord and then going to Saul and giving him the answers for what God was commanding them to do. So they're out on that. There's no more voice from the Lord to Saul because God had rejected Saul and Samuel had walked away too because in essence, it turns out, that Saul wasn't a believer in God. And so there's a significance here as we roll into this story and as we see the events that prepare them for this very significant battle and this victory. So let's just just dive right in. 1 Samuel 17, I'm just going to pick up from verse 1. It says this, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sekah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sekah and Ezekah in F.S. Damim. Yeah, help me. Help me here with these. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now, they had battled with the Philistines before and they defeated the Philistines. There's a reason why this has become monumental to them now, being face to face before the Philistines with a valley lying between them and them having some fear and trepidation about going after them again. Something has changed. Uh, continuing on. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain of the other side with a valley between them. Verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600. 
hundred shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. So what the, the writer's trying to do is give us a little bit of a picture of just how crazy this champion was for the Philistines. And how he just kind of rolled, it's like, man, he's rolling up to the club with his entourage, right? And like nobody has what he has. Nobody has the means to have the kind of armor that he has. He has a shield bearer. I mean, this guy comes rolling up and it's intimidating, right? This is something where when you see him come up to the lines, it's going to cause a visceral reaction. And that's what the writer's trying to point out to us here is just sort of the monstrosity of the sight of this guy rolling up to the front lines with his crew, with his entourage. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? You notice he didn't say, am I not a servant of my tribe? No, man, he just calls them servants and slaves. And then he says this, choose a man for yourselves. He's making a proposal. He says, and let him come down to me. Then he says this in verse 9, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's stop there. Here's the sitch, all right? You have the Israelites and the Philistines that are preparing to face off against each other. And the Philistines come to the table with just this monstrosity of a champion named Goliath. Just a menacing, just brute of a man. I mean, some commentators have him as tall as 11 feet, 9 inches. What? I mean, that's just insane. Like, it's hard to visualize that even for us, you know, all, you know, familiar with the, uh, you know, the NBA and all that. His armor and his weaponry is described to the point of just ridiculousness. It's like not something that any mortal man would be able to strap on and actually even like walk down the down the road with much less fight in. And so, man, his, his weaponry, his armor is just this massive display of power. And, and then besides all that, you know, because he has all of that, he has, he has kind of a mouth. That dude kind of has a mouth that sort of matches his stature. A little arrogant, a little cocky. You think he's won some battles? You know, you think some of those preliminary fights he's been in, that old uh, Goliath came out ahead? I think so. I think that's what we're looking at right now. He harasses Israel. And then he proposes that they settle their differences in a one-on-one heavyweight title championship bout. Now, I don't know if anybody thought that if they go one-on-one and the, the other side wins, that the other side is just going to white flag it up and like surrender and just you know, kind of follow them, strap on the chains, and be their servants for the rest of eternity. I don't know if anybody thought that was happening. So there's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of limbo going on right now. Why? Because Saul is not clearly hearing the voice of the Lord anymore. Let's pick up in verse 12. Now David, we get a description of Goliath. Now we get a description of David. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judea named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man, talking about his dad Jesse, was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth 
from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his hand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their thousand because I obviously want him to have the better food. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. So what we do is we see a a contrast here that the writer is laying out for us and it's kind of stunning after we just kind of come off to see who Goliath is and all this power and strength and might. Um, David's the youngest of three sons. Again, he's already been anointed king, but it would be years until, until that would happen. So what's David doing now? Well, he's running sheep for his pops who sends him on an errand to bring his older brother some food and get a report from the front lines. It kind of reminds us of the story of Joseph when Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers and get a report from his brothers. Here's the thing. Nobody's making a big deal out of David right now. David is just a guy tending sheep for his father, even though Samuel had visited him before and had anointed him as future king. Nobody was really making a big deal about that. Most people probably didn't even know that. David was just a guy, and he was a young guy. Nobody took him very seriously. He was relatively unknown. His background was simply as a musician and a sheep herder. I mean, there it is, black and white. Let's pick up with 19. Now, Saul... And they and all the men of Israel were in the Valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. Now, obviously, they hadn't gone to full-blown battle and war yet. But there was probably skirmishes as they were preparing, as they were camped on each side of the mountain with this valley separating them. And David rose early, verse 20, in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, just in case you already forgot, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard them. So apparently David wasn't even aware of what was going on with this beast. So now he hears the words. We go into verse 24, and it says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Ladies, it's cool. We just don't get to do that anymore. Back then, that was something you just got to do if you were a dad and had a daughter. We've moved past that. We've moved past that a little bit. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God. 27, and the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Remember, this is David's oldest brother. Eliab was one of the guys that when Samuel came to find one of Jesse's sons to be king, Eliab, the oldest, was passed over. And he went through all eight brothers until he got to David. And then God said, that's the guy. 
the youngest son, the one nobody cares about, the one that everybody has discounted. Samuel goes, oh, okay, grabs him and anoints him with oil, and that's it. So Eliab, you can imagine that he has a, he has a little bit of uh, animosity towards his little bro. This is what's happening right now. And so Eliab says in verse 28, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. 29, and David said, What have I done now? I mean, doesn't that just sound so much like brothers, like fighting? What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. This is David. And the people answered him again as before. So David hears what Goliath says. And this dude, this kid, this youth, as he's described, he just becomes outraged. He becomes enraged. He asked, what does the man get who kills the Philistine who is defying the armies of the living God? And again, he uses the phrase uncircumcised Philistine. And the reason why he phrases it like that is because it's clear that this man is not part of the covenant people that God has chosen like he did the Israelites uh, and, and set them apart to become a holy, separate nation under God. So he wants to make it really clear as he's even speaking about this guy that he's not one of us. All right? He's not part of the saved covenant people that God has made us, guys. Just in case you forgot, he's uncircumcised. He's a Philistine. And he's defying the armies of the living God. He's not just defying the armies. Like we're not all hurt and our feelings aren't all crushed because this guy's coming up and like saying some curse words. He's defying the armies of who? The living God. And they said, well, here's what you get, David. The guy who wipes him out gets the king's daughter and your family is free of paying tribute or taxes for the rest of their life. Here's what's interesting about David. David's not seeing the giant as a problem, all right? And we kind of get the language of that even this early. He's seeing God being slandered as the problem, all right? He's seeing unbelief as the problem. His brother Eliab hears David and is offended by his brashness. I mean, don't you love his bro right here? He goes, don't you have sheep to tend? Like, what are you doing here? His siblings are just the worst. You know what I mean? Siblings are the worst. They're the least supportive people ever. Like, if you thought you were, like, fighting with your brothers and sisters, like, all these years, I mean, it was happening back then. It's like, it just doesn't matter. It is what it is. But this is what's interesting, is that we need to remember that Saul had rejected God, and God had rejected Saul. And so as we sort of come into understanding who David was and we get some insight into his character, it wasn't really about who David was. It was who was with David. Let me say that again. It was not about who David was. It was who was with David. That's what gave David what we would call and what would look kind of initially like a brashness. But what it was was not a confidence in himself as much as it was a confidence in the God who was with him. I remember, gosh, uh, Melissa reminded me of this. I, you know, this was 20, 20 years ago. I used to pal around. I had a buddy. His name was Kurt, 400-pound African-American dude. And uh, we were really good friends. And uh, I'm telling you, every once in a while, we'd, we'd, we'd hit some shady areas, you know. We can talk about that later. But we'd be in some parts of town that weren't really desirable. But I'm telling you, when I was with Kurt... Like, I just didn't care. Like, it just, just didn't matter to me. 
It's like we'd be going to like some place or a restaurant or a store, and I'd be like, man, this is kind of sketch. But like, I, 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 man, if I had Kurt, I'd just go, you go first, buddy. I'd just walk behind him. And, you know, so the, these were days that I, these are days that I don't like to bring up often. But it caused me to have a confidence and a brashness because, man, I didn't have to worry about me. I mean, nobody's going to mess with me. I mean, they can, but really who they're messing with is my boy, Kurt. That's really what was going on. So that's what we see here. As David comes in, he finds out what exactly is going on with this giant. He's inquisitive. He's inquiring. And his brother is not having it like brothers don't have it with their younger brothers. That's what's going on. Now let's pick up verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, and they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So basically, Saul is trying to educate David a little bit and say, dude, you're not a military guy. I mean, you've got to open up your eyes and, you know, there's a little cockiness coming out of there. I see that. I respect that. But you've got to understand who it is that you're dealing with. 34. But David said to Saul, this is my favorite part of the story. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. That last line is a little ironic, isn't it? Go, and the Lord be with you, because the Lord certainly was not with Saul anymore. So what an amazing section in this story that doesn't typically get a lot of play. So what happens is word gets to Saul that this kid David is talking. Right? It gets back through the ranks, back to Saul. And again, this is my favorite part because Saul takes one look at David and is like, you can't do this, brother. I mean, this is a brother, this is a young brother here. This is not somebody that looks like he's going to be able to go out and fight anybody. Right? And that's what I like about that. And David's like, here's the thing, king. I just, I, I'm not trying to be cocky here, but let me, let me lay out to you a little bit of my story. He goes, I've torn apart a bear and a lion with my bare hands when they tried to steal one of my sheep. I mean, you're, and you look at that and you go, what? I mean, David is a beast, man. I mean, this kid literally rips apart a lion and a bear when they take one of his sheep. I mean, I've, I've met most of you out there. I mean, I just don't think any of you guys could like handle that. Right? So like if we're, if we're like one of these days this week, if I like unleash a bear like into your backyard and I'm like, dude, why don't you go see if you can like handle that thing barehandedly? I mean, you're just going to stay in the house with me sipping tea. Like nobody's going to go out there and try to handle that bear. And he not only handled the bear, but he went after the bear. He's like, oh shoot, I'm missing a sheep. I need to go find the bear and the lion that has the sheep from his mouth. And I'm just going to handle it. And he handled it. Like who, do, who is this guy? Right? It's just insane. 
So he's a beast, man. David's a beast, but not just a beast. But this is what I love about David. This is what we should be loving about David. He's a humble beast. David's a beast, but he's a humble beast. He tells Saul, dude, it's not me. It's the Lord that delivered me. And if you're like, you know, if you're like Saul, you're like, all right, okay, I'm not going to tell a guy who tore up a bear and a lion that he can't fight the giant now. I mean, if I'm Saul, I'm like backing up a little bit going like, all right, man, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. Let's, let's unleash you to this guy. Remember, Saul had rejected God. Saul had rejected God. So what happens is Saul makes a futile attempt to get David to wear his armor. Let's go pick up in verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these because I haven't tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones of faith, if we're going by that title that I read you from the YouTube clip, from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistines. So Saul makes this futile attempt to get David to wear his armor. And again, we we don't want to forget at this stage of Saul's life, the only protection Saul has left is his armor. That's the protection that he has left. But David can't operate it. So he, he can't wear it. He can't move in it. He's never worn it before. It's wearing him down. So he grabs a staff and a sling. And he grabs, you know, some ammo for his sling from the brook. And, uh, you know, you have to get the image here of what's happening. All right? David is surrounded by an entire army of men dressed head to toe in battle gear. Like all these dudes, the entire army of Israel, man, they're ready to fight. They got the weaponry. They got the gear. They're ready to fight. They're wearing the stuff. They have the protection. All of them, nonetheless, are scared to face Goliath. And David comes along with a staff and a sling. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? So he removes all the armor. He says, oh, he grabs his staff, grabs his sling, grabs five rocks, puts them in his pouch, and says, all righty now, let's go fight. You know, and it's just ridiculous. It's comical. Um, But what's interesting is that for David, David understood something that none of these other men understood. David understood that this was a spiritual battle that could not be won with swords. This was different. This wasn't just a physical encounter. This was a spiritual battle. 41. And the Philistines moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, (coughs) excuse me, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? He's talking about like his staff. You come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, 44, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me. Don't you like that? I like that right there. The Philistine says, Come to me and I'll give you. I'll give your flesh to the birds. David goes, How about you come to me? You come to me with a sword and with a spear 
and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that, like we just read, all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Then verse 48 says, When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. Don't you just love that about David? I mean, dude, no hesitation. He's not really fighting. The Lord is fighting through him. No hesitation. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. Then verse 49, David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. How many times has that been emphasized? Kind of a lot. There was no sword in the hand of David. 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. There's some parallels there to Gideon, remember? Gideon going after the Midianites. And as soon as they knew that they were defeated, they fled. Well, what I want to do is I want to lay out three truths for us to glean from this story. Again, um, when we are a congregation that gathers on Sunday, we, we are a mixed group of people. Okay, I mean, some of us have been walking with the Lord for years. Some of us are saved. Some of us are not saved. Some of us don't know Christ. Um, some of you guys are younger, your kids. Some of you are college-aged uh, students. Some of you guys are newly married. We're, we're all at different stages and phases <clears throat> excuse me, of our lives. But these are the same truths that confront all of us. They're universal truths here that the Lord is trying to instruct us through his word, to grapple with and to understand. The issue, all right, wasn't David confronting Goliath. The issue was not David confronting Goliath. It was God confronting their lack of belief through David. David believed God, and God guided David's stone into the forehead of Goliath. That's what happened. I mean, this isn't some just great, uh, just incredible strategic like battle plan that was laid out. I mean, don't see anywhere where David like laid out like his, his attack and, and how he wanted to go about defeating the Philistine army and where he wanted to chase them and the routings they wanted to take as they captured them and sort of started assembling them and figuring out like what to do with them and how to plunder them. There's nothing like that laid out here. I mean, this is a dude with no armor with a staff and a sling. That's what's going on right now. God was confronting. He was confronting the Israelites over their lack of belief. So here's three things. Here's three things. Number one, 
David's bravery didn't achieve victory. David's bravery didn't achieve victory. That's not what achieved victory here. It doesn't mean David's bravery didn't matter, but it wasn't the deciding factor. David's courage was not the champion. I mean, here's the thing. God wants us to be brave, but if we try to run off bravery alone, where does that leave us when we have a shortage of it? And we can all have moments where we can pump ourselves up and we can just try to assemble some courage. We can try to amass some strength inside of us. And then what happens when that disintegrates, when that leaves a trail behind us? I mean, some of us walk out of church thinking, man, I just, Ronnie, I just need to trust God more. I just need to read more. I just need to pray more. I just need to step out more. And for most of us, for a lot of us, those are some of the things that we take with us as we go out the door of church. And all these things, I mean, let me just go there with you. All these things are probably true. They're probably true. But how do you achieve victory in those disciplines? The question is, how do you achieve victory in those disciplines? I mean, what do you do? What do you guzzle five-hour energy drinks? I mean, what do we do with that, right? You join a CrossFit class? I mean, what, what do we do? What do we have for those disciplines? The problem with that, the problem with just trying to muster up our own strength, the problem with, a, the problem with going on the attack out of our own bravery and courage is that during those times when you're actually killing it, man, you become self-righteous, don't you? And you develop systems and ideas and plans to allow you to keep that momentum driving, but you can't do it. So you become self-righteous when you're killing it, and then you become self-condemning when you're not. So as soon as you run out of steam, then you heap all this condemnation on yourself because you're not doing the things that you think you're supposed to be doing anymore. And there's nothing brave about that. There's nothing courageous about that. David's bravery was founded upon his belief in God's character and promises. It wasn't bravery alone. He was living out what he believed about God. And that's what we're all doing. We're all living out what we believe about God. Who you believe God is, is the way that you lived your life. If you don't believe me, let's talk afterwards. Tell me about some of the things that you're struggling with. And I'll be able to say, it's because that's what you believe about God. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I know, but it's, it's this thing that I'm struggling with. Right, let's talk about what you believe about God and who he is. Because there is a one-to-one correlation between those two things. You are all living out what you believe about God, not from the bravery that you're able to muster without him. So David's bravery didn't achieve victory. Number two, Saul's armor. Remember Saul's armor? Offered nothing. Saul's armor offered nothing. What good would any of Saul's armor done against Goliath? What good would it have done? All those other dudes are standing around head to toe, decked out, uh, feather to fin. I mean, they got it all. They're wearing it all, man. They got, they got all the gear. They got all the stuff they need. And they're still scared. So the armor offered nothing. David didn't need that kind of armor. David needed supernatural protection because this was a spiritual battle as much as a physical battle. And so like Gideon, David was 
He was clothed in the Spirit. Remember when we read that about Gideon last week? Gideon was clothed in the Spirit. He had a different kind of protection and armor that he was running off of. When we go to Ephesians chapter 5, man, we see a different kind of war being waged, don't we? We see that we're fighting a different kind of war. We see that we're fighting a spiritual war. But how often are we like Saul and we try to put on armor that offers nothing for the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in? How much do we spend on things that weigh us down and offer no protection against attacks from Satan, our real enemy? Now, we don't tend to give Satan a lot of play here at substance, right? We don't like to give him a lot of press, but those are real attacks that come from an evil being created by God that can influence us in our walk with the Lord. I mean, some of us are like, we're like Samuel L. Jackson. Do you guys ever see those Capital One commercials? What's in your wallet? You guys ever, has anybody seen those commercials? Am I just, oh, two of you, I appreciate that. <laughs> What's interesting is that most of us believe that's our question. Most of us believe that's our protection, I should say. What's in your wallet? The question is not what's in our wallet. The question is who's on the throne? I mean, who's on the throne? I mean, they, the, the, the nation of Israel, they, they had resources. They had supplies. They had stuff. They had capital. They had means. What good was it doing them in all of this? What kind of armor did they need? Was it earthly or was it eternal armor? Because this is what I want to know. I want to know what you do when a loved one dies. Okay? What's the armor when a loved one dies? You tell me what you do when a dream disintegrates. You tell me what you do. You tell me what happens when you are unjustly accused of something. You tell me what you do when someone betrays you. You tell me what you do when you get sick. What kind of armor are we wearing? What kind of armor are we grabbing and putting on? Are you wearing what David wore? A dude with no armor, no sword, a sling and five stones. And remember, David had no confidence in his tools. It wasn't his tools. Remember that he never brags on his skill with a sling. Nowhere does he brag. No, nowhere does he say, you know what? I'm just better with this tool. Don't give me the sword, Saul. Just let me have my own tool. I operate better with the sling. I'm just a little more blue collar and lo-fi that way. That's not what he says. That's not what he does. Constantly goes back to being delivered by the hand of God. He delivered me from the beasts. He'll deliver me from this beast. So David's bravery didn't achieve victory. Saul's armor offered nothing. And finally, David and his sling were no giant slayers. That's why this message will never appear on YouTube. David and his sling were no giant slayers. Israel's champion wasn't David. It was God. God was Israel's champion. Like Gideon, God used something as ridiculous and as insignificant as a sling in the hand of a shepherd boy to show his people that their fears were unfounded. That's what's going on here. I mean, all it took, I mean, let's ask this question. All it took was a sling to knock down this oversized defensive lineman 
of a dude? That's all it took was a stone and a sling? I mean, do you see how little this had to do with David? If it had to do with David, then what would they do the next time the enemy appeared and they had a bigger giant than Goliath? What would they have done then? Oh no, man, David, grab a bigger sling. Maybe, you know, up your stone count to 10. What do you do then? God had to be their victory and the source of their hope and strength for future victories. They had to return to the champion, to the God of Israel. David wasn't facing a giant. He was facing God. David was facing God. And who was Goliath in comparison to God? Because the things that become giants in our life simply look that big and terrifying because we've set our eyes and heart on them instead of the one who actually reigns supreme over them. Man, you don't have to face your giants. You don't have to face trouble because trouble will find you. I mean, you just walk out the door and you're going to be faced with something. All of you are faced with something right now. And I guarantee that most of it wasn't anything that you guys have gone after. Because call me crazy, but we typically don't like to chase after things that we think are going to destroy us. Some of us do. Many of us don't. It finds us. So we are constantly facing giants. And we're facing trouble. The question is, do we come face to face with God? Who needs to be the face of our protection over those troubles and over those trials? Who was Goliath in comparison to God? Who was he? Who was he? And finally, we don't want to miss the underlying imagery of the gospel in this story. It's interesting. The people of Israel, man, they could not save themselves until David stood in their place to save Israel. He was a shepherd who was laying his life down for his sheep. And God delivered him and all who followed him. Again, they didn't ask David to fight. They didn't earn David's favor. He was ridiculed by his own brothers. He was mocked and cursed by his enemies. But David was God's grace on the people of Israel. And by his sacrifice, the head of the enemy was cut off. We have to draw those parallels because Jesus is God's grace on us. Jesus is God's grace on our unbelief. Jesus is the one who bruises the head of Satan. Jesus is the one who cut that head off. He's the one who reigns victorious. He's the one who established his kingdom the way David reestablished Israel as a kingdom. Because at the end of the day, we are not saved to face our giants. We are saved to come face to face with the living God who will face those things with his strength. How do I do that? How do I face God? Well, you do it face down in prayer and you do it face up in his word. That's how we face our giants. Somebody's going to kill me for even just saying it that way. That's how we face our giants. We face God who fights 
before us. He won the war. He is our victory, like he was David's victory, like he delivered David. He will deliver us from the mouth of all of the things that are going after us to eat us alive. The good news is Jesus, our victor. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this great reminder today. Gosh, we have read this story so many times. Um, I know I have. I know it's been taught to me so many times. I've let my eyes glide over it very quickly as I'm going through chapter after chapter as I read your word. And sometimes it just becomes like white noise. It just becomes like wallpaper. Or sometimes we read it so thinly And we just want to go out and we want to be supercharged. We want this word to be the thing that is propelling us. We want it to be our energy. We want it to be something so that we feel like we can just garner our own strengths. But Lord, you you teach us something different here. David wasn't coming in cocky or overconfident or relying on his skills with the sling or relying on the past that he had when he literally tore lions and bears limb from limb. That's not what he was relying on. He was relying on you. He was relying on your strength. He acknowledged that all of those things came to pass because it was you who went before him. It was you that gave him the strength. It was you that empowered him. It was your grace upon his life that allowed him to not be defeated by not his enemy, but your enemy. So Lord, help us to remember that, Lord. Help us to come face to face with you. We do have giants in our lives. We do have things that are bearing down on us. We do have things that feel like they are right there in our face. But most importantly, if we're in Christ, we've come face to face with the living God. So Lord, strengthen us as we come face to face with you, as we bow in prayer before the throne of grace, as we diligently seek you through your word. Lord, equip us and strengthen us through these great truths, Lord, so that our focus and our reliance and our hope and our trust is on you. We are so cast down. Our souls are cast down. In Psalm 42, it says, why are you cast down? Oh, my soul, hope again in God. So this morning, Lord, we pray that we would hope again in you. Help us to do that, we pray. All God's people said, amen.